What's going on guys, it's your man with the plan, Samuel Plan, coming back at you once again with another brand new installment of Sports Entertainment is Dead right here on Lords of Pain Radio. Thanks for tuning in guys, if you missed last week's episode you can still go catch that on demand, the way to do it is very simple, head over to Spreaker, head over to lordsofpain.net and you can catch my last episode of SCID on demand, you can also do it through your usual podcast provider as well. Please also make sure you check out all the other great shows here on Lords of Pain Radio. We have stuff coming to you each and every single day of the week, covering everything from New Japan Pro Wrestling, Ring of Honor, TNA, Indie Circuits, British Wrestling, you name it, we've got coverage for it. So do make sure you check out all the wonderful shows. You can do so by subscribing. Don't subscribe to Lords of Pain Radio, but do subscribe to each of our shows by their individual name, and that way you can make sure you don't miss a second of the great coverage we've got for you here on Lords of Pain Radio. It is another week in my ongoing project for Sports Entertainment is Dead Year 2. If, of course, you're unfamiliar with it, and this is the first time you're tuning in, I take a guest host every single week and we explore a match chosen quite at random historically either by myself or said guest to explore the themes, the creative merits, the character, the narrative, its historical importance, anything that we think is worth commenting on. It's all inspired by my book 101 WW Matches to See Before You Die which you can still go ahead and buy on Amazon anywhere in the world. And of course, it's also the inspiration behind my second incoming book, which will be a direct sequel to 101, but will be focused specifically on the new generation era. Both of these books explore many of the benefits that come with watching your professional wrestling as performance art rather than as sports entertainment, which as the title of my show implies, is, in my belief, dead. That's what these match explorations aim to do as well. And this week, we have another Back once again, joining me this week, he was here last week to talk about the 2013 Royal Rumble match, and this week he's here with me to talk about the 2018 Royal Rumble match. Welcome back once again, Maverick. Great to be here. Um, 2018's Royal Rumble match, I'm eager to jump straight into this thing because I don't think we've ever had a a protracted conversation about it, though I know that I think perhaps we have slightly different opinions of it, uh, in the sense that I was a huge, huge fan of it. Uh, when it first happened, I thought it was a real return to form. I really enjoyed some of the meta narrative that it, that it seemed to very self-consciously uh, play with. It came at a time when um, uh, a lot of people were 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 very very cynical about the future direction of the company after a disastrous year in 2017, where a guy like Jinder Mahal had been WWE champion for months on end, and pay-per-views had started to get ridiculous, and uh, and they'd announced that. Uh, uh, you know, I, I don't know if they'd announced it at this point or not, but obviously soon after that we would return to dual branded pay-per-views again. Uh, and then it felt like there was a big conversation about needing someone contemporary to win it after Orton had won it the, the preceding year, Triple H the year before that. Uh, you know, uh, Roman Reigns controversially in 2015 and then 14, you had Batista, 13, you had Cena. It felt like we needed something contemporary, on point uh, and and um, uh, and f- that felt like uh, well, as I said earlier, a return to form for the Royal Rumble match. Now, we're big proponents of, of re- making sure we, we're constantly revising our view on history. And in retrospect, a lot of the Rumbles before this one weren't all that bad, but there was a there was a real pertinent sense of that at the time. The match happened. I was a huge fan of it. A lot of other people were a huge fan of it. 
I think you were perhaps not quite as a huge fan of it. Um, I'd be interested to know what your opinions are of it now that we're uh, two years removed from it. I think yeah. in in general terms. First I think of all. I was, I th- well, I think I was a bit lukewarm on it at the time. Uh, I was to be wary of myself though, because you know there's a, a a large tendency of me just to kind of decide to be lukewarm in it just because everyone else liked it. So <laughs> hard to believe. Know, I'm like you know I do have to acknowledge that about myself. And <laughs> watching it again, I loved the first half of it. I thought you know the first. Um, half an hour 40 minutes was was really really good um and i felt like it started to get really flat towards the end and interestingly we talked last week about the predictability of the winner not being a problem i think the unpredictability of the winner here is a huge problem um and although you know people might have enjoyed a nakamura win like I do think that a good Rumble winner needs to have had a bit of a run-up. And it doesn't have to have been like a a whole year planning in advance for it. But Nakamura had been so poorly handled um, since he'd gone to the main roster that it did feel like a kind of desperate attempt to salvage him. Um, And it was a little bit like that whole thing where they did the trick they do every year where they bring Roman Reigns out late in the Rumble just to troll people because everyone starts booing so I think Roman Reigns is going to win. I was so tired of that at the time and it felt just as cynical when I watched it again. Um, and it, although, you know, great, you know, Nakamura does win and the fans really like it and, he, and I really like the promo afterwards where he, he calls out AJ Styles well in advance of WrestleMania without, you know, so he doesn't have to do that sort of nonsensical thing where like, was it the Undertaker that time? Sort of like when like sort of kept walking between the two champions. <laughs> Three <laughs> champions because back then ECW had a world champion. Remember? Oh, of course. Like, like the that. Undertaker was going to challenge for the ECW title at WrestleMania. Was it like Matt Hardy the champion or something? No, Bobby Lashley was <laughs> oh, at the time. God, even worse. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I th- I felt like that's that was a good ending. I thought Renee Young handled that interview really well. Uh, but yeah, I did feel like when the sort of old guard came in towards the end and you had you had Orton knocking about and Reigns and uh, I mean, even missed for a degree, Cena, it was all a little bit, um, yeah, a little bit flat. I felt like, you know, the, the whole Rollins going out thing uh, was interesting, too. I mean, I like the fact that Reigns was the one that eliminated him because they were like obviously still kind of. Um, very closely associated as as kind of friends at this point in time and and that was really well done but also you could tell that the fans were a bit let down by that and it was a, because obviously this was during Seth's um, was it this run with the Intercontinental Champions? It was it was this was it would be shortly after this where he would do the hour long um, performance on Raw where he beat Cena yeah. and Reigns and that sort of kick started. Um, you know, his whatever the opposite of a ha- Anus Horribilis would be. <laughs> it's Anus Mirabilis. Uh, oh, Christ, of course you'd know. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, he, um, <laughs> but he, he certainly was, was on a, a hot run of form at this time anyway, and it did feel like the crowd got a bit deflated by Rollins going when he did. I feel like if the last two had been Rollins and Nakamura, we'd have had a, a quite electric crowd reaction. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, I love the thing. There's lots of things I loved about it. Elias's performance 
even though I can't stand Elias, I thought he did so well in his role. The role he was... I mean, the key thing with the Rumble is you get given a role. If you're one of the feature players in the match, you get given a role, just play it well. And he played it really, really well. Um, Balor, obviously, um, has a, a really fun uh, Iron Man performance in this. Um, yeah, Andrade, obviously, I love Andrade. And he was absolutely brilliant in his kind of, you know, breakout NXT guy role. And the Wyatt-Matt Hardy storyline, which was going on at the time, you know, they, they played into that really, really well too. Um, the Heath Slater stuff, what's well, been done before, that sort of, you know, guy gets beaten up on the ramp and then, you know, keeps getting beaten up all the time. But, you know, he it was it was well enough. It was done well enough. Um, I felt like this was the year they officially ran out of Kofi Kingston ideas because he, you know, gets back in by standing on a plate of pancakes, which I think is maybe going a bit far. Uh, I mean that that trope wore itself out the second year they were doing it. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, so yeah, the, I think the first half of it is really, really well done, and I think it just goes a little bit flat in its kind of final third. Well, there's a lot to grapple with, uh, and I've picked it for some very specific reasons. Let's start with that first point that you were making, though, about the winner. That was the the primary kind of motivation behind my deciding to pair it with with the 2013 rumble that we discussed last year and we got a little bit into you know Cena's victory what it meant for that particular rumble and and how it shed light on that the idea of it being uh, of nakamura being um uh i i would be hesitant to call it a surprise winner i think a lot of i remember a lot of people were, were picking him heading into the event that year uh, and the the whole reason being that they wanted to see that Nakamura Styles match that had been done at, at Wrestle Kingdom, I think a couple of years before, to much critical acclaim, uh, and people were anchoring after seeing that at WrestleMania. Um, and then of course Nakamura does win, um, and what happens is, yes, he calls AJ Styles out straight away, but then if memory serves, you've got about three months of just nothing story until the match happened, and most people were let down by the match on the night. I really liked it, but a lot of people didn't. Um, uh, and the the really interesting stuff the two of them would do would be after the the WrestleMania season when when Nakamura showed his 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 nastier side. Um, and it felt to me the issue with it in retrospect, I think, isn't necessarily that that Nakamura. Um, well, let me put it this way. I think the only reason that it feels like apocryphal that Nakamura wins it in retrospect is because of the, the, the unsubstantive manner in which it was then followed up. I mean, a year later down the line, you know, he he has what essentially amounts to a cameo in the Royal Rumble match rather than feeling like a former Royal Rumble winner. Certainly isn't treated anything like a favourite to win it the following year. Here we are in 2020. You know, he's just recently had a, a long and, and very uh, tepid stint from what I understand is Intercontinental Champion. I haven't been watching for months, so I wouldn't know, but um, that's my understanding. Certainly he was in the midst of that when I was still watching. Um Never won the world championship at all, you know, after multiple attempts against Jinder Mahal in 2017 that he lost and multiple attempts against AJ Styles in 2018 that he lost. And it's he doesn't feel like the only example of this when it comes to, to Royal Rumble winners. I think you could say the same about Sheamus. I think you could say the same about Alberto Del Rio. Um and when you get this situation where you have Royal Rumble winners that then go on to have, um, you know, 
admirable careers in their own right. I don't want to talk down the achievements of, of these talents, but careers that necessarily don't stack up to the careers of uh, Royal Rumble winners back when the match was, you know, sort of the first decade of the match's existence, the first two decades of the match's existence. It always felt like a big deal. And then all of a sudden you, you start this getting this trend of, of someone wins the Royal Rumble, then they're, they're never even anywhere near ever being considered to win it ever again. And I think that is, and I've banged on about this before, again, demonstrative of lack of direction. I mean, I don't want to get too meta because this is Sports Entertainment's Dead. We're meant to be talking about the match, but, you know, it, it is an important point to make about the match. Um, the A lack of direction for the wider product, not knowing who they wanted to pin their colours to as a company, uh, and also, I think, uh, a lack of roster positioning resulted from that. I think this particular instance as well is a very toxic example of something occurring because of uh, uh, an internet-born reputation. Uh, Nakamura winning this didn't feel justified in narrative terms, uh, but could have felt expected to some because of the fact so many people were anchoring after him winning it, and and the only real reason they were anchoring after him winning it is because they wanted to see him wrestle AJ Styles because he did an NJPW which isn't necessarily the greatest reasoning behind attributing a Royal Rumble victory uh, to somebody. And ironically, this is one occasion where perhaps Roman Reigns would have been better served being the winner. Um, though I am thankful for, for cultural reasons that he wasn't that year, because I, it was a rush to see someone different win it and someone that fans wanted to see win it, win it. Um, and I think that's a, an important point, uh, and the sort of the reasons behind it, you know, are what they are. But but also we we can't lose sight of the fact that it was a winner that fans were happy to see, and that felt like a major difference. Um, but I think that the, the the issues in retrospect, and we talked a little bit last week as well about how the conclusion of a Royal Rumble can so often uh, sort of come to define its legacy historically. Uh, and I think that this is this is an oddly positive example of that. Um, but I think if you really start to dig into it, that might be why it feels apocryphal because you're going to look in the history books in 20 years' time, see Nakamura's name there, and you're going to go, but he never really achieved much. So why did he win a Royal Rumble? I mean, and, uh, you know what the exactly what the problem is here, and it's that they've got two belts. Well, quite two brands, two belts, and so every year you're like, which one is going to win the Rumble, which is your traditionalist way to get a title match at WrestleMania, and which one will they have to plot another route for, you know, um, and and so it almost becomes this sort of narrative struggle to get to WrestleMania with two champions because the Rumble winner ends up having to essentially tread water for three months. Um, because, you know, everyone knows now in on January the whatever that Nakamura intends to wrestle AJ Styles. Well, what's he meant to do in the meantime? Mm-hmm. You know, and they used to be quite clever at finding ways to keep that Rumble winner occupied, you know, um, you know, Michael's, um, you know, having that match against Owen Hart uh, in your house. Oh, I can't forget the number. <laughs> but, but, you know, six, six. Yeah. Like w- those sorts of things um, used to be able to keep the Rumble winner busy. But with two brands, it just becomes sort of increasingly difficult. And so by the time it got to WrestleMania, that sort of fan support for Nakamura and the excitement of seeing an in inverted commas workers match as a title match of WrestleMania was a little bit um, dissipated. 
Because there was no story. Exactly, yeah. Um, uh, you know, it's so they got such a huge sort of self-made problem on their hands, not only because of the brand split, but also because of the the distance now between the Rumble and WrestleMania. With WrestleMania in April, seemingly, every year now, um, that's a long time between shows. And they're now putting two pay-per-views in between uh, the Rumble and WrestleMania. So it, it becomes, even now, the guy that's not won the Rumble that's going in the other route has got some sort of tortuous road to WrestleMania. <laughs> you know, like several flat tires along the way, you know, phoning up the AA. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a very strange state of affairs. You long for the neatness of the 90s in so many ways when you watch Rumbles. Um, so yeah, absolutely, and I, and I think that the, that's where that's why I paired these two, the one we discussed last week and this one together, because I think you've got two different examples of a phenomena where you know Cena wins in 13, people are disappointed, but it has the story to carry it through to WrestleMania in an interesting way. Nakamura wins in 18, people love it, that's great doesn't have the story to carry it through to WrestleMania, ends up in an anticlimax. Uh, and so there's a, I think there's a real historical lesson in looking at the way that those two play out on the night and also thereafter. And figuring out that you need that balance. You need to have a Royal Rumble winner that makes sense at the time that they win, but you also need to make sure so that they can be carried through to WrestleMania, but then you also need to make sure that that person is someone the fans want to see win. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, it's it's as a result, Royal Rumble becomes so often these days a time of year where WWE's collective bad habits and bad practices come to bite them because it, it's increasingly difficult for them to seemingly uh, manage to achieve that balance but you mentioned some other some other stuff earlier that I want to get into one of the things that you seem to be cooler on going on your comments at the top of the show is one of the things that I actually really like about it which is the 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 meta narrative that they seem to lean into I mean it's so apparent to me that I can't help but feel it's done purposefully, particularly at the back end, where you have, you know, you think about the final six and they pair off against contemporary guys and veterans and that feels very, very relevant to the narrative of the Rumble over the preceding years and what um, so much of the atmosphere at the time wanting a current guy to win it. Uh, and you had Cena, Orton and Ray not afraid to heal it up either, the three of them, um, in that position. And the way that that then slowly transitions into a... Um, I can see why it would feel cynical, certainly, but, but a, a, a narrative... Uh, at the very end in the final two between Reigns and Nakamura to a slightly lesser extent with Cena as well where it's you know the company guys versus the guy that the fans want considering that 2014 and 2015 in particular culminated in controversies that seemed to demonstrate a WWE that was either a willfully ignorant or b catastrophically uh, unaware of fan wider fan sentiment the thing that I love about 2018 is the fact that actually it shows that WWE has eyes, it does pay attention, and it can be very, very acutely aware of the atmosphere of the fans. And I, and I, and I think that because of all of that, there's, there's a lot of reality era vibes to uh, the, the climax of the match in particular. But it, there's also elements throughout the match as well. Two in particular stand out involving John Cena. Uh, the first is, and I mentioned this in passing in 2013's uh, review last week, 
there's that moment in 2013 when he makes his entrance and you have an array of mid-carders lined up to fight him and then he dispatches them with ease and eliminates a bunch of them. Here you are five years later, his music hits, the ring stops, everyone lines up to fight him, he gets in the ring and they beat him down and he doesn't get a lick in. And to me, that plays further into that meta-narrative at the end about this feeling like a changing time. Sadly, we would go on to prove nothing of the sort yet again, but nonetheless, at the time, it was very refreshing. There's also a wonderful moment when Roman Reigns comes in. They had that awful match at No Mercy 2017, Reigns and Cena, that you and I both hated. Um, and so you're almost expecting a moment like in 2011 where they tease a Cena or and stare down about three times and the crowd just do not react to it because no one cares. You, I half expect that to happen and all that happens is Cena charges at Reigns and Reigns just like takes him out with a single punch. And there are so many moments of symbolism in this match um, and meta-narrative in this match uh, that it feels enjoyable to watch because it feels almost vindicating for fans who have been frustrated with WWE's apparently ignorant booking practices for so long prior to this very sadly wouldn't lead anywhere as we know doesn't change the fact that I like it in the confines of this match though yeah no I mean I, I, I do enjoy the that scene moment was, was really was really uh, was really well done I did really enjoy that um, I guess it's just difficult to put this one in historical perspective in some ways mm. because as you say like there are many shows that you could point at and say this is when the tide is shifting towards contemporary stars um and you're just conclusively proven wrong every time um so it's kind of yeah it's a little bit difficult for me to kind of view it in in that light in a way um you know had they gone with rollins at that point and said right yeah you know range you've had your chance at brock lesnar let's go with seth rollins Seth wins that belt a year early. We might be living in a quite different time now. I think that's a very good point, yeah. Um, and and this is when we were talking about the winner again. It's like Seth wouldn't have been an out there choice, but he wasn't the most obvious choice either. And sometimes you can hit that sweet spot of, you know, um, somebody that is a really credible winner but doesn't necessarily have to win. Um, and it just might have really been a, a big boost um, to the company at that point. But What's interesting is that, again, we're recording this in November of, of 2019, so we've recently been doing some retrospectives on, on New Gen 95. Talked about King of the Ring recently. Um, and one of the things I mentioned was I really liked what they did in 2002, where they positioned King of the Ring ahead of SummerSlam and, and sort of treated it as SummerSlam's Rumble. Winner of King of the Ring gets a title shot. You know, it, it proves the worth of that concept in that if they'd have had it even, even later that same year, if they didn't want to pull the trigger with Seth at the Rumble, he wins King of the Ring in June, challenges Lesnar for the title in August, which he absolutely should have been doing. I think if you, again, if you look back at SummerSlam, uh, that year, if if when Seth was absolutely scorching hot, uh, if they'd have pulled the trigger then, as I was arguing for them to, then again we could be living in a very different world. So um, I can see why it is a struggle, and I, and I think as well, to be fair, on the slightly more negative side, we we spoke about. I've already mentioned this on the show this week, but we spoke last week about roster positioning and how it feels so very vivid in 2013. I think 2018 suffers for not having that. And I think that, that what's very abundant is you have a lot of guys who've established themselves, like a Finn Balor, uh, like a Shinsuke Nakamura, like Roman and Miz and Seth, 
uh, and Cesaro's in there at some some stage as well, uh, and so on and so forth. Elias, Rusev, uh, and yet, you know, you've got Jinder Mahal in there, and Jerry Lawler's picking him as a winner because he was a former WWE champion, you know. And while I don't mean to make too big a deal of that, because it's ultimately just a passing moment, I think when you when you have such a muddied roster that's so full of uh, dead-ended undercut stars who were once big like if it was 2015 Rusev starting you know if this was January 2015 and Rusev was there at the start you'd expect him to have a massive night right so um but it's not it's it's 2018 and and Rusev has had his career undercut innumerable times Finn Balor um you know through a combination of, of injury and an inability to find his niche that perhaps was already occupied by other stars you know has a fantastic coast to coast doesn't necessarily feel um, well, doesn't feel necessary to the match, though. And I think that, you know, when you when you start to look... Because there's a load of phenomenal performances in this. You know, I think Seth has a fantastic showing. Roman has a great showing. I think Shinsuke puts in a, a decent shift as well, incidentally. Finn, I think Cena plays his part brilliantly, to be fair to him. Um, Ray has a, a surprisingly effective night. Elias, you've already mentioned... One person I think, um, and the same goes for the Greatest Royal Rumble they did later that same year, is is Baron Corbin shows how he should be utilised on uh, effectively, which is a is a short, sharp, difference maker, power guy. Because I think that he comes in and he does that really well very early on. Andrade you mentioned I think has a stunning showing uh, in this match and and what he's able to do with New Day is a great example of roster position in action actually but unfortunately because there's been such a mess leading into this and such a mess coming out of it like you say I think that makes it very difficult not just to analyze historically but even to place because it feels like um, in terms of, of you know uh, periodization or in terms of, of where it slots in the narrative of WWE's history as a company, it feels sort of homeless. Yeah, no, it does. It's, it's kind of, um, it's a lot of great performances that don't have a country. Yes. Um, Finn Balor, for example, again, like you look at, uh, at Finn Balor as somebody who has not taken the next step to the degree that he's back in NXT trying to establish that as the third official brand um and peddling a narrative about how it was all the main roster's fault that he didn't succeed by the way and and to a degree <laughs> you know to a degree you'd have to say that, that he had a point because if you look at performances mm. like this i know he's had injuries but you look at performances like this um you know they never really follow that up you're in the rumble for 57 minutes in a in a in a feature spot right coming in number two like that should have been a huge deal um and it just kind of wasn't uh for a lot of reasons we talked about the problems with his character and being an irishman in a leather jacket and that sort of thing um but even so like the problem with rumbles in the modern day is that these kind of difference making performances they don't make you diesel anymore you know like you can have an eye-catching rumble performance and it won't make a blind bit of difference to your career um, and, and that is a huge problem because this match has always been about establishing stars. And you don't have to win it to become a star, but if you have a eye-catching performance in it, you can have your card marked as somebody that's got a future. And if you look back, you know, uh, we talked about Cody Rose last week as being somebody that consistently was really good in Royal Rumbles. Um, it didn't do him any good. 
Um, and you could say that Allah think... here sort of falls under the same kind of category. Well, I think one of the issues, this is something I've discussed with, with um, my the friend that I always watch wrestling with in, in recent years when Rumble rolls around as well. It's one of our favourite shows of the year. But one of the issues is, I think, that they've, they've fallen into this habit uh, of putting everyone in the Rumble every year. Uh, and instead of thinking about, you know, we want Reigns, let's say, just for the sake of argument, we want Reigns, Rollins and Wyatt to be our, you know, our top guys for the next few years. Uh, Reigns, Rollins and Wyatt are in the Rumble every year, even when they're not winning it. Um, and so what happens is, uh, and I don't want to make too big a deal of this because I am talking about a wider issue here, but I do think it's pertinent to say, that a top guy shouldn't be in the Royal Rumble unless A is going to be there at the very end or B is winning the thing. Uh, and too often you get, you know, like like Bray Wyatt in this in this match, for example, you think you think back to, is it 2015 when he's just thrown people out left, right and centre? Yeah. It's his first Rumble. He absolutely dominates in it. Uh, he's there at the end. He feels like the role that they give to Big Show and Kane at the end of that Rumble should have gone to Rusev and Wyatt for their performance through the match. But he feels like a big deal. Uh and then he slots in in 2016. It's slightly less of a big deal, but he's involved in eliminating Brock Lesnar. And again, he's there at the end. So it feels like a big deal. Uh, 2017, it starts to diminish. By the time you get to 2018, and he's just having you know a, a brief fracker with broken Matt Hardy, um, suddenly he feels a bit, little bit less like a star. And one of the things that, um, that I remember discussing with my mate uh, in 2019 in the lead-up to the Rumble was with Rollins, because obviously I really, really wanted Rollins to win it, and it felt desperately like it was his moment, and thankfully this time he did. But we were saying, unless he's going to win it, they shouldn't put him in it. Because I think it can do harm to the to the legacy of, of the Rumble as a match, and what's what it's achieved for stars historically. Like, if Austin wins in 97 the way he wins in 97, but he'd been in the Rumble for five years running, having anything from an Iron Man performance to a three-minute cameo, then the win in 97 doesn't feel anywhere near as special, right? So um, I think that for their top guys, especially someone like Reigns, like Rollins, they shouldn't be in Rumble matches at all unless they're going to be one of the central pillars of the story that that Rumble match tells. And I think too often... That's not the case. I think Rollins gets away with it here in 2018 because, uh, you know, he was sort of embroiled with other stuff at the time. But certainly after he's won one last year, um, you know, if he's in it, and not just him, but other top names as well, if they're going to be top names, if they're in it, they need to be one of the big players in it. Because that was always the case. You know, you go back to like the late 90s, for example, um, or the the early 2000s, you know, the big names were treated like, like, they were they were all potentially going to win this thing, and I think too often they tend to fade into the background because of a proliferation these days. Well, you need to handle it very carefully. That's why I love 2001 because it handles those big names so so correctly. You know, yeah. Kane is the one who has the big, you know, the big Iron Man performance. Um, you have sort of Undertaker. Perhaps the in. performance that Rollins should have had in 2018. Quite possibly, yeah. I mean, you have the Undertaker coming right at the end. You have. Um, Rock somewhere in the middle, Triple H, um, you know, comes out and attacks attacks Steve Austin so that Austin gets blooded on the way to the ring. Yeah, you know, um, so Austin actually only really gets in the ring quite a bit towards the end, um, and so they they handle that that problem of having, and of course you know like uh, Triple H and Kurt Angle are kept out of it because Angle's the champion, Triple H for the title match. So so you you know they handle it by by 
putting them at either end of the match. And so it's kind of like, oh, well, you know, Kane and Rock would be contenders, but they've come in earlier than, than you would have thought. So, like, that's that's kind of how you handle it. But, yeah, Rollins, I think, I mean, I think last year as well, Rollins really should have had a sort of iconic Rumble performance and they just gave him a kind of, I don't know, like he came it's in almost, a time. It's almost like they're afraid of doing, after they got burnt so heavily with Roman in, in 2015, um, and maybe even before that, actually, it's like they're, maybe it was seen in 2013, I don't know, but it's like they're afraid of doing... You know, what I've phrased in the past is kind of the action hero performance where someone basically just comes in and kicks ass for however long. And they seem to be too obsessed with doing an underdog story every time someone popular wins it. But they always manage that underdog story poorly. Like in 2016 with Roman, you know, he gets attacked halfway through, fair enough. But then he walks away on his own volition. He comes back in his own volition. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't portray him particularly effectively as an underdog and so people reject it and I think 2019 from memory again I haven't gone back and watched it I do remember quite liking it but you know they did a similar thing with Rollins where he gets put through the table by Bobby Lashley and it kind of works from a character perspective but I don't think that's the kind of win that people as you're saying that people wanted that year they wanted I think to see because essentially Rollins got as hot as he did in in 2018 with these matches that were just exactly you know in constant motion and and just action-packed and that was the year when he should have been presented as you know not as an all-conquering superman but as a as a as an action hero like Dean Ambrose is in 2016 you know like a John McClane type performance you know that's what I think people were after and, and I think they mismanaged it and I and I think it was probably further I think that the entire match to be fair to Rollins and his performance I think the entire match had the wind taken out of its sails when they decided to pull that stupid stunt with Nia Jax at the end of it and it all devolved into a comedy mess for 10 minutes that just completely derails uh, you know the entire narrative of the match you know it's like everything gets parked so we can do this thing with this gimmick with Naya and then everything comes back together and I don't think it ever quite gets over that and then there's the weird thing they did with Ziggler where he eliminates McIntyre instead of the other way around yeah there are a few misjudgments but um, we've gone way off course as yeah. is the case but as I, is I was, the case with us but you know I was gonna I mean I was gonna say that um, if you look at the iconic rumble wins um you think about like Randy Orton in 09, for example, um, they're not afraid of bringing him in relatively early. Yeah. And he dominates the match. He dominates the center of the ring for the whole match. You know, he's directing traffic with his cronies. He's, you know, he's RKOing people that have jumped off the top rope at him. You know, he's, he's sort of, you know, just, you can't take your eyes off him. Um, and the problem with Nakamura again here, it's like he's in it for forty-four minutes. He eliminates three people. Quite. I yeah. just think it's that, it's a two thousand and six Ray, uh, you know, where Ray's in there for over an hour and lies down for about fifty-five minutes of it. And that's the thing. It's like, um, and actually, when you, I mean, another, I mean, just looking at, at, at just, I mean, I, like the Rumble by the numbers, like nobody's got more than four eliminations. Like Balor's got the most with four. And it's 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 a little bit like again he was in there for like an hour, so it's it's it does seem like a rumble which is curiously, um, curiously well, that's a dominant performance I would say. And I would again I would link that back to to roster positioning issues, but we are out of time. So um, 
thank you for tuning in, folks. My thanks to Maverick for joining me uh, this week. Maybe uh, we'll we'll talk some more Royal Rumble stuff on the pond or some such. I, I don't know. We are recording this in November, so who knows what we'll be talking about in January. But uh, knowing us, we'll probably still be <laughs> just following through on, on uh, our new gen from 95 through 96 through 97 and ad infinitum. Who knows? But hopefully we'll find some time to talk about Rumbles. Mav... Thank you for joining me in the last two weeks. It's been a pleasure to have you back. Um, I'm sure you'll be back again in the in the far-flung reaches of the future in the <laughs> five or six months, whenever it may be. Absolutely. Um, uh, to talk about something else. So thank you for joining me. Do you want to plug anything before you head off? Uh, well, given we record this three months in advance, who knows <laughs> what I'll be doing? So, uh, you know, I, sh- I shall just uh, direct, direct people to the pond, as always. Cool stuff. So, um, yeah, thank you for joining me. Pleasure. My thanks one last time to Maverick for joining me once more here on SEID. I will, of course, be back next week with another guest and another match to look at. In the meantime, if you have any thoughts on anything we've discussed this week or on any previous week, you can reach me in all the usual locations. Hit me up with a tweet at LOP Plan. You can reach me at Facebook, look up Samuel Plan, or best of all, join our great community at LOP Forums. Just sign up. It's perfectly easy to get to through loadsofpain.net. At the top, you'll see a link that says Forum. Easy to sign up, free, and you can be part of a great wrestle community there. In the meantime, I'll be back next week. And until then, stay safe and have a good one, folks.